0: Good morning. This morning we're going to continue with our Love Is teaching series. It's us our way through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're going to bring the first eight verses up here on the screens. And, um, and trust that the Lord will speak to us through his living word this morning. Starting in verse 1. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love I am nothing if I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast but do not have love I gain nothing love is patient love is kind love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude it does not insist on its own way It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that no matter who we are or how we walk in here, you would speak to us through your word and mold our lives and our hearts and our minds that we might follow you and come alive. See the world come alive around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I hope that you've seen this. Um, One of the things when you study kind of scripture is that you want to look for threads that run throughout the scriptures. Threads that hold different verses together, different chapters together. It's important you see threads uh, that, that, that bring commonality to things and give us themes and ideas that we want to hold on to primary theme that we see here in this passage of scripture is the idea that love is not primarily a feeling. It is not an emotion. Most of us when we think of the word love we think of feelings of love and the Bible says that feelings of love are of God and that those are good things but we also know that feelings can come and go. That emotions can come and go. The word that is used that we translate as love from Greek is the word agape. And the word agape is not about our feelings. It's not about our emotions. It's about our actions. And what true love is is not a feeling, but it is an action of seeking to serve and sacrifice for another. Love does. Okay? And so Paul, to help us through this passage of scripture, to try to get a better grip on what is this action of love, is he then starts coupling the word love with different terms and ideas that might not at first uh, be words that we would associate with love. We talked about that the first term that he associates with love is he says that love is patient. Now, It's not that I think that there's no correlation between patience and love, but I don't think if someone gave me and said, Thomas, define love in a couple of sentences, I don't think my first response would be, well, love is patient, right? But Paul's is the first thing he begins with. And what he says is, is that love is patient. And so part of what he's saying in that is that he says that that you are here to love. And if you don't have love, he says you are a, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You're missing the point of what life is about. We are relational beings, but rather than just saying become more loving, which is kind of abstract, it's easier sometimes to get our heads around what is the call to patience? And that if I can start understanding patience and pursuing patience, that I actually become more loving and I then get more in touch with what life is about. Or it says love is kind. So rather than just saying, well, you know, become more loving, it's like, well, if I can focus on kindness and understand what kindness is biblically and I start cultivating kindness in my life, then as I become kinder, I become more loving. And this is the whole reason I was created. We come alive as we do these things. Today we're going to be focusing on verse 6, where he couples the idea of love and truth. Normally we think of truth with our minds and love in our hearts, but he says they're the same thing. He says that love rejoices in the truth. As we begin, I want us to define our terms really carefully today. We've already defined love. Love is not an emotion, it is an action, a sacrificial action. What is truth? When we hear that word, most likely most of us think about some sort of concept that really smart people somewhere at a university like UT, wrestle about and debate about and write books about, but it's a concept that we're supposed to understand with our minds. That's, where, that's the culture that we've been in, uh, raised in, that truth is an intellectual concept, a theory that we are to pursue and understand. It's really important we understand that biblically, truth is not a concept to understand, is that it is a truth that is embodied. This is really important. When the Bible talks about truth, it says that truth is not an intellectual idea, it is a truth that is embodied in a person, the person of Jesus. For example, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We see this collision of the idea of truth as intellect versus truth as embodiment in John chapter 18, probably better than anywhere else. Jesus is on trial, he's awaiting his crucifixion, he is put on trial in front of Pontius Pilate, And in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus then has this kind of private one-on-one conversation with Pilate. And Pilate's trying to talk to him and and maybe even looking for a way to get him off of uh, of the hook of the crucifixion that's coming. And Pilate's trying to understand him. He says, you know, who are you and what are you about? And Jesus says, I've come to testify to the truth, to bring witness to the truth. And Pilate says, truth, what is truth? And Jesus, if you remember from John 18, says nothing. He's just silent. And you're looking at him going, say something, like wow him, say something to just blow him away so that everybody will know what's going on here. But he's just silent, standing in front of Pilate. This is a collision between truth understood as a concept and truth embodied. Pilate's going, give me the definition, what is truth? I want to know it. Tell me, give me the answer that I can circle and write it in permanent ink so that I know the truth and I can live in that. And Jesus in his silence, he doesn't forget his lines. He's not nervous going, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say right now. But rather Jesus is saying truth stands before you. Truth is not an answer I give you with words. Truth is embodied. Truth stands before you. Jesus is saying you are looking at truth and Pilate wants words. We have to understand and have these words defined when it says that love rejoices in the truth, because as followers of Jesus, we have to always, with this word truth, be willing to consider that truth is not a concept, but it's a person. And if that's the case, then Jesus is the embodiment of both love and truth. And therefore, it is in a person that we find our destination of what it means that love rejoices in the truth. And of course, the central act of love, if love is not feeling, if love is not emotion, the central act of truth and of love and of Jesus' life and ministry is the cross. The cross is then the embodiment of perfect love and perfect truth, sacrificial action poured out. And it's that that I wanna spend some time on today because it's that that if we pull back from it for just a second, the cross can be many things. Like if you really stop and think about it and get out of the Sunday school answers that we you know, kind of can rehearse, it's like the truth can feel like many things and, lo- and the cross can feel like many things, but it doesn't really feel loving, does it? <laughs> Do you know what I mean by that? Like, like what is the cross? The cross is violence and torture and death and agony and wailing and mourning, and loneliness, and injustice, and the human cruelty put on display for the world to see. The cross is many things, but it doesn't really feel very loving. And to even go further with that, there's always this question of like, if God is so loving, why is this necessary? Why is this violent act, why is this act of sacrifice, like, God? can't God just like say, I love the world? I mean, we read in the Bible, it says, God is love. God is love. So why can't God just look at the world and go, I love you? Why is this Agna? It doesn't seem loving. It doesn't feel loving. Because you know, if we just think of God as love, which is a concept I can celebrate in my heart and I feel drawn to, and it makes me feel good. And it and it kind of, you know, reminds me of these kind of wonderful moments. Because you just think of God as love in your way, and I'll think of God as love in my way. And as long as we're good people, then we can just agree to hug it out in the end, and everything's gonna be great. Kumbaya will solve everything. Right? There are many, many, many more people in our culture today who find that idea far more acceptable than an orthodox understanding of the crucifixion and resurrection. God's love, the universe's love. You have your way, I'll have my way, we just love each other. Why is this act so necessary to believe in? Okay. Okay. To get at that, and I promise you there is a thread that's going to, I'm going to try to connect this. I can't promise you there's a thread. I see a thread. No one else may see a thread, but I see a thread in this. To get at this idea of why is this loving and necessary and what is that about, I want to back away from 1 Corinthians 13 for a second, okay? I want to back away from that and I want to move about 400 years prior to when Paul wrote this to the year 381 BCE. In the year 381, a uh, work of literature that uh, was published for the first time that has shaped every one of our lives, whether we know it or not. Uh, I was first exposed to it in college. I, 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 I uh, told Beth this morning, I said, I'm going to be sharing something that I was first exposed to in college. And she's like, what are you sharing? <laughs> and I was like, "What? I, like, I'm good. She goes, tell me what you're sharing. I was like, Socrates. And she's like, OK, I, whatever. Go share that. I'm sure there's a connection. Okay. In 381 BCE, 400 years before this, uh, the book Plato's Republic was written. Uh, This is a work of philosophy. I was a philosophy major in college. I focused on political philosophy. And so my first semester of my sophomore year, if you're going to talk about political, political philosophy, Plato's Republic has shaped so much of how we form our world. Okay, Plato would be mortified at the way I'm about to explain in like a minute what that book is about. Because that book, has anyone here read Plato's Republic? Yep, okay, more of you than I'm actually comfortable with. Um, (laughs) I think Plato's Republic. (laughs) No, Plato's Republic is a book where Plato is writing, but he's not in the story. The main character is Socrates, the great Greek philosopher. And the question that that book is trying to wrestle with is to answer the question, what is justice? What is justice? They're trying to build a republic, a city state. And so as you form a society and a government, uh, you've gotta know what is justice. And so it's a search for truth. What is a true definition of justice? And so this book is like hundreds of, it is a page turner, it's hundreds of pages long where essentially Socrates the philosopher is sitting, I imagine him sitting, it doesn't say he's sitting, but I sort of imagine him this wise person like sitting back and kind of doing this, and his students and other philosophers are around him, and they try to throw out their definition of what is true justice. And when you read their definition, these are really smart people throwing it out, so you read like on page six, the first one throws out his definition of true justice, and you're like, I think that's the answer. I don't understand how there's 850 more pages in this book because that feels like it's the answer. That, that seems like a really solid definition of true justice. And, you know, and Socrates is sitting back, and he listens to it, and he's like, that sounds like a really good answer. Does it sound like a good answer? And the other people are like, that sounds like a good answer. And I'm reading it 2,000 years later going, that feels like a great answer. Can we stop reading now and just take a test on this thing and move on to something else? And he says, now that answer is based on certain assumptions. And if we're going to make those assumptions and you say that this is the definition of truth, then we have to be able to move the example a little bit to like right here. And if we just move the example a little bit, does that still feel like true justice? And you're like, yeah. And the people reading it go, yeah. And he goes, okay, good. Well, if we just had move it a little further, does this still feel like justice? And you're like, yeah, that feel, feels like justice. And that feels right. And he goes, okay, well, so we move like here. And then you're like, page after page after hundreds of pages, he's still moving. I'm not going to get any closer. Like He comes like right here. And then he stops, and he's like, he gets the most extreme form of the argument, and he goes, does this still seem true? And you go, no. Dang it, no. And he goes, okay, if it's not true in its most extreme form, none of the rest of it is true. It might seem right in the moment, but if you're gonna say something is a true definition of anything, including justice, it always has to be true, even in its most extreme form. And then the next chapter starts, and someone else lobs out a definition, and the whole thing starts over again, right? If it doesn't hold true in its most extreme form, it's not true. Now, this is why this is important. I need you to understand this today. It's really critical, so I'm gonna give you a quick example. To make sure we got it, um, I was in a coffee shop here in Austin a couple of weeks ago, and you've been in these coffee shops. It's not the it's not the chain coffee shops because you know we're Austin and we don't do that kind of stuff. And so we go into the alternative coffee shop, and what that means is there's one barista working for like the 400 people that are there. So even though you only have 20 minutes, you go in and you take 15 minutes to order, and then you go into this holding area where like. 15 people are gathered, waiting for their drinks to come out. And about every 10 minutes, one single drink is put on the aisle. And they're like, this is a double non-fat macchiato, blah, blah, blah. And, and everyone's like, I wanted the triple like, soy milk one. And it's like, sorry. And they take it back. And you're like, oh my gosh, I just want a cup of tea. Like, could I just get some hot water in a tea bag, please? Right? but we're alternative, so we do it anyway. And so we're sitting in this holding area, and because you know it's the year 2018, we don't talk to anybody because that would be awkward, so we all pull out our phones, and we're sitting there, and I'm looking through ESPN on my phone because I'm hip and I'm cool, and this is kind of what I do, and I can sit in the holding area with everyone else and be late and not seem stressed even though I am. And in front of me, and this sounds creepy, but I wasn't listening to another conversation, but when no one's talking on their phones, I promise I wasn't, there was this, this couple in front of me And she's on her phone, and all of a sudden, she looks at her husband or her boyfriend, the guy next to her, and she goes, did you see someone won the lottery last night? And I think the number she gave was like $580 million. Someone won $580 million. And the guy says, man, life would be better off with $500 million. And she said, truth, (laughs) because that's how the kids speak today and this dorky little socratic mind of mine is behind them going is it is it true <laughs> i mean it feels true right like life would be better off with 500 i would love to know i mean i would love <laughs> to experience that. It feels like it would be true, right? The kids can just go to college wherever they want. We don't have to worry about retirement anymore. I can go on vacation where I want. The budgeting is a thing. Like, that feels really good. It, you know, we'd give the covenant and stuff too. That would all happen. But like, it would be awesome, right? And I know that there are people who live in this city and around the world in abject poverty who have no access to money and no access to capital, and that more money would dramatically improve their lives. And that is true. And that is real. Ross Baird was talking to us about in October when he was here. But is it true? Well, you can go to the most extreme form that $500 million would just make life better, and you can actually look, and there have been studies done of people who have won the lottery, for example, who have won hundreds of millions of dollars. And so their life should be better, and they are miserable. And it's not just they were miserable because they blew through all their money, but they were miserable while they had it because they kept spending on things and they didn't get any happier and they didn't get any more satisfied and then family and friends were all coming on, can you give me some money, I need money. And you're like, well, don't, you can't say I don't have it anymore because you stood there with the big awkward check showing how much money you had. So then you like give some money and then someone gets angry with you because you only gave them so much but you gave their cousins so much more. And so then you got to figure that out. And what they say is, is that not only did it not make me happier, but it actually strained my relationships around me and I was miserable when I had it. So while I would love to experiment with this idea, because I think I would be different, and while it feels true in the moment to say $500 million makes your life better, it is not always true. And since it is not always true, it is not a true statement. Do you see that? And what's really cool about it, and this is the dorkiness getting even more, is that you can actually learn things and extrapolate things from that. So you can actually take an example like that and say, so one of the things is is that most people then in life are motivated by getting more and more of what they want. And what's cool is when we see that extreme example, we actually learn it's like life and fulfillment, therefore, are not about getting what you want only. That's a really cool thing you learn at the extreme, and then you can just take it all the way back down, right? Okay. Back to the question we started with. Why was a was would a loving God allow the cross? And why would a loving God say that this is the act of human history that defines what love and truth are about? Why is that so necessary? Can't we just sort of skip that part and say God is love? God forgives. Well, let's take that idea, because I hear that and there's a part of me that's like, I kinda like that. Right? Let's take that to the extreme. If you're gonna say it's a true statement, it's gotta hold true all the way down the spectrum, right? Miroslav Volf is a theologian at Yale, one of the most preeminent theologians in the world today. Miroslav Volf writes about this along with many other things. And Miroslav Volf talks about um, this idea that he says he is here, especially among American students and American people. They're like, God's just love. The universe is loving. Let's just love. Love's forgiving, right? And that's what we do. Miroslav Volf was born and grew up in Croatia. Croatia and Serbia were regions in the 1990s of some of the worst fighting and civil war that we have seen in the last 50 years. Ethnic cleansing and genocide were there. It was a horrible situation. Miroslav Volf knows many different people who lost their lives and whose lives were dramatically affected by the ethnic cleansing and violence in Croatia and Serbia. He says, you think about that you think about looking at a person whose wife was murdered in that whose children were kidnapped whose parents were butchered you think about someone who watched the ravages of what ethnic cleansing is about and are you telling me that the God of love looks at that situation and goes I love you I love every one of you it's just okay maybe you had a hard childhood Maybe things have just been difficult. Come on, let's hug it out. Bring it in. I'm the God of forgiveness. I'm just the God of love. I'm the one that brings everybody together. Miroslav Wolf says that is not love because it trivializes the pain of the ones who are oppressed. It's God looking at those who have had the violence inflicted upon them and saying, sorry, you just got to kind of work this out because I'm God and you got to forgive and you got because we just kind of hug it out here and everybody's in and everything's okay and this is just the way it works because I'm God and God is love and everyone knows that. And so let's just kind of all, right, get along. He says it takes the victims of that and it victimizes them again because God trivializes their pain. He says that is not a God of love. And if it's not true in the extreme, it is not true at any point along the spectrum. That's not a Christian straw man I set up. That's how Western thinking and educational theory has been built. Let's take something closer to home than Croatia. Like many of you, I have been horrified, horrified, at the trial of Larry Nassar. a doctor at Michigan State, a doctor of USA Gymnasts who for decades preyed upon victims. I am amazed at the bravery of the women who have stood forward demanding justice and demanding that their voices be heard. I've seen and read and watched videos of the testimony of parents of these young people and what they are dealing with. And as the father of two young girls, I think about that a lot, of what those families are enduring and the pain that they have had inflicted upon them. And you see how raw and how real it is still. Are you telling me that the reaction of a loving God is to look at that situation, including the victims, and saying, hey, let's just kind of move forward I just love everybody. Let's just all bring it together and say that everything's going to be okay because we can just forgive and get along because that's what love is and I'm God. And so I just got to kind of bring everyone together. Is that love? That doesn't feel like love to me. Love is the presence of justice. It is the presence of righteousness. It is the presence of of a love that is powerful enough in God to encounter human suffering and name it and overcome it and transform of it. Love is not a love that takes human suffering and just sweeps it under the carpet and says that everything's gonna be okay. And if we say that love in the extreme form is a love that demands justice, then that is true all the way down the spectrum to people like you and people like me that we live in a world where God doesn't look and just goes, hey, I get it, you know, I'm love, and you can just kind of come, that God says that greed and selfishness and deceit and words that hurt people, that those will be accounted for. The things we think in our hearts, the things that we do in our lives, the good things that we leave undone, that our God, not despite his love, but because of his love, says that there must be a reckoning for that. And if, You have one degree of self-awareness that should petrify you. It petrifies me. And into that situation comes the words of Jesus that says more frequently than any other phrase in the gospels, do not be afraid. Why? Because love is not an emotion. It is not a feeling. Love is action, sacrificial action. And that God has sent the Messiah, the Savior, into the world to go to the cross. And that action of laying himself down, as the prophet Isaiah writes, is where God places upon him the iniquity of us all. Love triumphs because it does, it sacrifices, it moves into action, not because it ignores pain and just thinks that it can bring everyone together. And so as people of faith, we can see the truth that is alive in this teaching and in this passage and we can, as Paul writes here, rejoice, rejoice, that love rejoices in the truth. Because the purest form of love that the world has ever seen was not expressed in a John Donne sonnet. As beautiful as they are, it's not expressed in the words of William Shakespeare in a play like Romeo and Juliet, as wonderful of a description of love as that can be, but the purest form of love this world has ever heard expressed is in the words of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As they describe the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection, that sets us free. This is the gospel. This is the good news that you are more loved, more valued, more worthy than you ever could begin to imagine. Hallelujah and amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this day that truth and love would dwell together in our minds and hearts and lives and fill us with hope. We ask for this and pray for this and find hope and rejoicing in this, maybe for the first time ever, maybe for the first time in a long time, as we celebrate this act, this sacrificial act through communion. We pray for this, And pray for your guiding to work in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.